Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All right. So at the end of verse uh, 9, it says, Now that day was the Sabbath. Okay, we talked about that. Verse 10 says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Last week, we talked about the principle of the Sabbath. We talked about four R's. Do you remember them? Rest from your toil. It was not only to be a, a time of rest, it was a symbol of relationship, and it was a time of remembrance of what God had done for them. It was basically the garden that back for the day. It was a gift to man. Um, and really, is this not the picture of what we saw, we talked about in this healing? This man who was lame, he was bound, he was in bondage, Jesus freed him. And you can just see the picture of all falling off of him. You can see the freedom, new life and new hope and new beginnings. I can see a smile. I can see him walking for the first time, breathing different, looking at things different. It's an exciting time. It was, it was literally a picture of freedom until the religious leaders, the Jews, tried to cripple him again in their law. And instead of focusing on this new life or this new miracle, they focused only on the fact that he was carrying his bed. We talked about last week that my uh, mentor, Brian Glubish, said, yes, they were too busy, right, straining gnats and swallowing camels. They said, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful to take up your bed. Last week, I gave you my perspective when they basically, like, how could you do this? That he, based, that he said, um, oh, I'm sorry. Like, this is the way I read it. I'm sorry. I must have got caught up in the fact that, you know, I've been uh, lame or weak for 38 years, and I was just healed. And the guy who healed me, who had the power to heal me, told me, pick up your bed and walk. So I'm so sorry. In the midst of that excitement... I must have been distracted and forgot the fact that, oh my word, it's the Sabbath and it's illegal to carry something on the Sabbath. My bad. Okay, that's just how I read it, right? And so they say, who is this man? Well, the man actually didn't know because Jesus had slipped away in the crowd. It almost seems like Jesus has left him carrying the bag. I mean, the bed, right? You know that's funny. I've said it twice now, and you still haven't laughed. I think I said it last week. Okay. Um, but then it says, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. And we talked about this a little bit. Why is he in the temple? Well, he absolutely could be there to worship and be thankful to God. He could be there uh, to perform a sacrifice, even for cleansing, to be a part. But he could also be there because why? That's where the Jews congregate, the religious leaders. They've taken him to the temple, possibly to interrogate him further on the fact of that he has broken this Sabbath law. Now, how big is this offense? Uh, yeah, it's potentially fatal. There was a precedent. I mean, they could have gone back to Numbers 15, 32, where a man is caught uh, under the leadership of Moses and he's out gathering sticks on the Sabbath and basically he is commanded to put the man to death. Now, this is not the same situation in the two, but basically, if they want to hold to the letter of the law that there is a, you know, something that has happened before that they could pinpoint 
um, a precedent, they could. And they could put him to death over the letter of the law, but definitely not the what? The spirit. Because the Sabbath was given for life. And actually, they knew that. Actually, the religious leaders knew that when it came to life and death on the Sabbath, you always choose life. Here, this man was alone once again. How did this happen? But yet Jesus shows up. John tells us that just right about this time, Jesus shows up and finds him in the temple. And this is what he says to him. I think it's interesting timing that John is showing us. He didn't get left holding the bag. Okay, Jesus shows up. He's making sure this man knows who he is. To be quite honest, I think he's doing that to take the heat off the man and put the heat on who they really want to face. All right, but he says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I'm going to give you my slant of this. You can, you can totally think I'm wrong, and it's okay. You can have a whole nother slant, and it's okay. Because on this stuff right here, we give liberty. Um, on Jesus dying on the cross for your sins of the gospel, not so, okay? So I find some interesting things here. When he says, see, you are well. In my mind, I see him sitting down by him and going, you look good. How good to see, you look great, look at you. You look well, amazing, like enjoying this healing. But then he says to him, <clears throat> sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Hmm. So when you look at that and you say, sin no more, first off, your first thought, well, at least my first thought is what? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> like, it's almost like that's an impossible command, right? Um, because in some ways, if you look at it that way, it is impossible. Um, and so he, he literally goes and says, hmm, sin no more. Now, some people will tie this statement and believe that that is proof that the man's ailment is then because of some kind of sin. I personally think that's a stretch, Okay, I don't think that fits the context of the story to me. And so, but okay, my thing is this. I think it is, <clears throat> it is interesting. Uh, well, for one thing, I don't think Jesus is going to say, go and sin no more. Whatever caused this, don't do it again because something worse may happen to you. Like, I'm going to heal you this time, but if you continue down that road, dude, you're on your own. Like, something worse. I just, I don't see that happening. Um, but, and I also find it interesting that this is one of only two places where Jesus tells someone to go and sin no more. Um, I also find it interesting that there is no talk of sin during Jesus' interaction with the man, and that the sin does not even come up until we're in this situation with the Pharisees. And so in some ways, you're like, okay, what is sin? Sin, we know, means what? Missing the mark. <clears throat> Whose mark? I know, but in the context of this story, like, what's the issue here? He's really missed, and, and I'm not, I'm, he, he's missed the spirit of the law. They're holding the letter of the law. In some cases, it's like he's missed their mark, right? A little bit. And then you think, wait a minute, but the whole story are they not missing the mark? Right? It seems like this man is not the only one that is missing the mark because here they are straining flies and swallowing camels. They've missed the mark. They've got the Son of God looking right at them, and they're completely missing the mark. The only other time Jesus uses this is with the woman caught in the act of adultery. Okay? So I think these are interesting similarities. First off, I truly wonder if the woman was literally caught in the act of adultery. I've always wondered that because that is the story of the religious leaders, that they literally caught her in the act. And we know that the law says basically that she could be stoned to death because of that. But what else? Who's missing? The man. And actually the law said he could be too. So he's missing. 
which makes me think of maybe she wasn't literally caught in the act, but maybe this was a plan behind the scenes that they were coming up with a scenario to trap Jesus by using somebody, probably a prostitute, that's a throwaway. Do we not see the same attitude with this man in the healing of Bethesda? Do they really care about this man at all? Or are they using this throwaway as a trap to trap Jesus? And so, in my mind, I, I view it as when he says, sin no more, basically he's saying, listen, sin no more. Learn from this. Do something different. Change your behavior. Stay off their radar unless something worse happens to you, which is what? They actually do put you to death, okay? He says that to the woman, go and sin no more. Go and change your behavior. Don't do this again. This, the stuff that's happening here, stay off their, do what's right, stay off their radar. And so that could possibly be it. And then maybe it is sin no more. He's talking about the sin of belief, meaning, listen, if, if you don't figure this out, if you don't believe, then if you think being lame for 38 years is bad, what profits a man to gain his whole life if he loses his soul? That could be there as well, okay? So I believe that the bottom line is Jesus is saying to him, this isn't about you. It's about me. They've used you to get to me. You look so good. I'm here, no worries. I want you to know who healed because I want you to be able to tell them the truth and I want you to leave and I want you definitely to pay attention, change your ways, do what's right, stay off their radar, unless something worse than this should happen. And so he does. It says that he went away and he testified that it was Jesus. I do not believe, some people are like, they're really hard on this man in some sermons. I don't believe he went and tattled and ratted Jesus out the minute he figured Jesus came for the reason for him to know who healed him. I think he went and he answered their question and he said, I now know that Jesus healed me. And guess what? Once he said that and they realized Jesus was there, were they that interested in killing this man? Nope. He just falls right off the pages. He slips away. Um, Jesus totally knows what they're after. Verse 16 had said, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the, on the Sabbath. This wasn't the first time he had healed on the Sabbath. They had been watching for him. If you don't think for one minute at this celebration, because in the Passover he had done so many amazing signs, they are watching for Jesus. They have scouts out, they are watching, and that is why they found, oh, a healing occurred. We want to inquire who did it and what's going on, and we want to find a reason to then interrogate this Jesus. What's our reason? We don't care about the healing. He's carrying a bed on the Sabbath. We have found our point. Now we're going to cut to the chase, and now we have Jesus right where we want him. We are going to interrogate him. That is what is happening. Jesus says... My father is working until now, and I am working. Okay, you need to understand a few things. The issue of Sabbath in Genesis, right? There was the work of creation. He worked for six days, and he rested on the seventh day. Yes, he was instituting the idea of Sabbath rest and creating this cycle for us. But we also know he did not rest because he was tired. He rested because it was finished. The job was done. Creation was complete. When he looked at it, he said, it is very good. What does that mean? Each individual thing is created to be just what I created them to be. And as it functions together as a whole, it is perfecto. It is moving like a masterpiece. It is done. And so he sat, he rested because the work was finished. What interrupted the work? I mean, what interrupted the rest in the scriptures? Chapter 3, what happened in Genesis chapter 3? Sin. Sin. And although redemption was planned before the beginning began, it did not begin until what? Sin. And so, yes, the work of creation was complete, but then there started the work of redemption. And so we see that 
that this, this work of redemption, the entire life of everything, the, the patriarchs, the prophets, the life of Christ, all the way up to the cross. And then Jesus said what on the cross? It is finished. The job was complete. And then what vision do we have? He ascends and sits down at the right hand of the Father. We also know, guys, that Jesus completed, he was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. What does that mean? He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He didn't just come and uh, replace the old law. He fulfilled every part of the old covenant, including the Sabbath. Why? He is our Sabbath rest. He is our rest. We no longer toil under the burden of the law. We have been set free because what? He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the work of redemption. We receive it as a gift. And so Jesus is my rest. He is my means of relationship. And so he is the Sabbath. And this is what he's saying. And they also knew, I mean, think about this. God the Father was working every day to determine life or death, life or death, life or death. Jesus is saying, I too. I am working life and death. And you know what is interesting? What are they doing? Are they not sitting on the Sabbath and determining what? Life or death? Do you see the hypocrisy in the whole thing? So now we enter into this entire discourse of Jesus and these religious rulers. In verse 18, it says this. Okay, this is John's commentary. Do you notice? Look in your Bible, like follow along with me today because in this section that I'm reading, this verse is in what color? Black. All the other verses we're gonna look at today are in what? Red. So that's Jesus talking, but John right now is giving us some background so that we understand. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. He gives us reasons because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So look back at that last verse. Do you see that he said, my father is always working? What normally would they have said? Our father? But he said, my father. And so they're like, not only is he breaking the Sabbath, but he is calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Breaking the Sabbath rules. We've already talked about that. The fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And by the way, you need to understand that Jesus, everything in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. This is what he was talking about in chapter 2 when he says, destroy this temple. By the way, he was predicting the destruction of the temple in AD 70. You're so worried about this temple uh, made by man, you got no clue what's coming. There's not going to be a stone left on another. It is going to ultimately be, be destroyed. And then what does he said? Destroy this temple, but in three days, I will raise it up again. Because what is he trying to tell them? I am the temple. I am the fulfillment of all of the types and shadows and promises. Everything is completed in me. I am the temple. Never again, listen to me, will God fill a temple built by man with his spirit. It won't happen. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. The spirit is, is in Jesus. He is the temple. I'm going to read you because I'm going to tell you, you're like, Shannon, who cares? And I'm not going to go into revelations with you. I'm really not, although I kind of want to right now. I'm not going to, um, but these beliefs affect your end time thoughts, which affects your peace in the world right now. And this is why I think I'm getting fired up to talk about revelations because I think it is so, end times are so misunderstood. And so I want to read to you, I'm just gonna have some fun. I wanna go through some verses about this temple thing and then I'm gonna leave it for you just to ponder 
Because I want you to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. Sometimes you're looking for something that has already been fulfilled. And so I want you to see this. So let's start Psalms 118, 19 through 24. We're just going to have some fun. I'm actually going to start kind of in 17 because uh, this kind of creates the mood for the next part. It says in Psalm 118, 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Praise God, right? And then we have this promise part that comes. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. So we have this idea of going in a beautiful gate into righteousness. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. So what's the entrance into it? The Lord, okay? I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. This is a big part. The stone that the builders rejected. Who are the builders of the house of God? Who started the whole thing? Israel. 12 tribes of Israel, okay? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it. So we have these little hints of what's coming, okay? Next, are you interested in this? I don't really care because I am, so you get to be. Yep. Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. <clears throat> what half of the Bible is this in? New Testament. Are you thinking that way? Okay, so who's he talking to? Christians, the church, okay? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are building, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I want you to really meditate on that verse this week. Okay, there's a lot to that. Okay, next. I'm just giving you stuff to study later. Not going to give you every answer. By the way, Hebrews 11.10, when, uh, when Ephesians says, built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that word foundation is also in Hebrews 11.10, and it's referring to Abraham. Listen, listen carefully. Abraham knew that the end-all, be-all was not the little section of Israel. He knew it because he literally said, that his eyes were looking towards a land whose foundations were where? In heaven, okay? That's what he said himself, the father of this nation. Then go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read to you some verses from verse 5 and 9. 1 Peter, I'm going to read to you verse 5 and 9. Actually, I'm going to start with 4. As you, I always do that to y'all, don't I? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9, it says, but you are a chosen race. Now, I want you to think about this. Think about these words, who they were talking to, these same words were spoken to the nation of Israel. But now they're being spoken to who? God's bride, okay, the church. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Does any of that strike a chord with language that you heard in the, in the past with the nation of Israel? Okay, but it's, it's to us. 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous life. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Your brain should be really, really going by now. Next, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. All right, here's the kicker, Revelations 21. Y'all been wanting to go there. Everybody wants to go there, right? Well, I'm doing it. I'm doing what y'all want. Okay. Now, with all of those in your background, listen to Revelations verse, uh, chapter 21. I'm going to start in verse 9. I'm going to say some things that you're going to go, what? And then I'm going to move on in our story. That's what's going to happen today. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. We talked about a gate before, a gate coming into Christ, into righteousness. These gates, there are 12 of them. There's three on each side, we're going to see. And at the top, it represents the 12 tribes of Israel, right? How did God bring salvation to the world? Abraham, I will bless your nation so that all other nations will be blessed. Then the east three gates on the north, three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. We've talked about that in the other verses. You can go back and look. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, I'm going to come back to that. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city's lies four square. It's, it talks about that it was a perfect cube. Okay, verse 17, he also measured its walls. Um, I want to move down to verse 22. Okay, so you can, you can read the description of all that. And it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. And it goes on to tell us that it had no sun or moon, that the glory of the Lord lit up the place. Okay, I am telling you, the glory of God will no longer possess a temple made by man. He is the temple. And I'm going to blow your mind just for a second, and I'm not going to give you any answers. Um, if you want to talk to me about the 144,000, I'm going to show you the 144,000 right here. You have the city, the new Jerusalem. He is the representation of the Jerusalem. He is. And it talks about that the 12 gates would be the tribes of Israel. The 12 foundations would be the foundation of the prophets. The cornerstone or the capstone is Jesus. If you take, this is the full picture of the body of Christ. It's not 144,000 Jewish men who are virgins who are going to be in a tribulation. It's not that. It's 12 times 12 is 144,000 and 144 and it is Biblical prophetic language of times a thousand. One day in your courts is like a thousand, right? I'm going to bless you unto the thousandth generation. You want to see the new Jerusalem? There's no need for a temple. I am the temple. You are the living stones put together for the living temple. You are the temple. The spirit dwells in you. What is the body? What do the people of God look like? 
It is the tribes of Israel times the apostle times a thousand. I'm telling you, once you start seeing this stuff, you're like, oh my word, Thunderbird. It is beautiful. And the thing I want you to see right here is that they were holding on to this old law, the Sabbath, the temple, the sacrifice. He is fulfilling all of it. It all gets fulfilled in him. He is our Sabbath. He is. He fulfilled the law. He took away the need of toiling under the law, and he has given us freedom, rest in him. We have been redeemed. He is the temple, and he has put his spirit inside of us to become the temple of God. Our sacrifices are not animals that had to continue to go on and on and on, but they are spiritual sacrifices. That's the fulfillment. There are not two people, the nation of Israel that God still has a plan for, and then the body of Christ. That is not the theology here. It is one body. That's what it is. There was the tree of Israel. It was cut off. Then what happened? A shoot. Who was it? The shoot of Jesse. Who is his son? David. That would be a kingdom forever, right? And then out of it, what does the New Testament language say? We are God's family. We are the royal priesthood. We are the holy nation. We have been chosen. And he uses family, just like Abraham, family language. You've been adopted. You've been grafted in. Abraham is not your father. The devil is your father. Because if you thought you were the kids of Abraham, you would believe what I am saying. Abraham saw me. He believed he is the father of all who believe. Who are my people? The seed of Abraham, who was Jesus, whoever believes in him, that is the family of Abraham. Do you understand? I don't even know why I'm teaching this stuff. I just got off my notes. I'm on fire, okay? But I want you to see the whole narrative, all right? In Genesis, we were one people. First 11 chapters. One people, that didn't work out too good, right? You get to 11, after the flood and everything, you have the Tower of Babel, the greatest revolt of all, where the nation, the people, I mean, as a whole, rebel against God. So God uses language, and he disperses them. He breaks them up. In, in, in a way, basically, he lets them go. He lets them go to worship other gods, and then he chooses a man because of his own sovereignty, not because of anything Abraham did. He grew up in Ur, the Chaldeans. He worshiped other gods, the Bible said. But God reached out to him, and he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And God, through him, made a new nation. How is it described? A holy nation, a royal priesthood. I, where you weren't a people, I made you a people because through you, I am going to bring redemption to all. I am going to bring the Messiah who then will offer salvation to all people. This is what he's trying to explain to the Jews and the disciples. It's not about Israel. It is about Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Your descendants are going to be like the stars and like the sand. It's a much bigger picture than you think. And then Pentecost proved it, right? He comes and he does the exact opposite of the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel, the rebellion caused, brought a language dispersion that dispersed, a confusion of language that dispersed the nations. What did Pentecost do? The opposite. All nations came hearing the gospel in one language, but hearing it in all of their languages, not to disperse, but to what? Unite, because God has always had one body, one bride in mind. He completed everything. And so the prophecies have to do, the future prophecies to come have to do with the body, the bride, how he is restoring his bride to present her. Does that make sense to you? Does it, is, is there any aha moment in there? It's very hard when you hear all kinds of little things 
and you don't have the connector between the two, all right? One day, when I'm in a better place, I'll teach you revelations, okay? Okay, there you go. Now, back to our study, which now we're almost done, but here we go. Verse 19. (laughs) So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. By the way, they're accusing him of claiming to be equal with God. And and listen, that wasn't a false accusation. Because Jesus is about to prove, yeah, you're mad at me for, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. So now that you think that, let me explain why I have said my father. I'm just going to go on into it. So this is what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatsoever the father does that the son does likewise. So when you say truly, truly, this is saying this is monumentally significant. So you need to listen to what's coming next. And basically what he describes is that he is the image of God. Now we're going to go deeper into that. Um, Colossians 1, 15 through 17 basically says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 3 says that he is the representative of his very being. The replica. John 10.30, Jesus says himself, I and the Father are what? We are one. 1 Corinthians 2.11, by the way, says that no one knows the thoughts of God except for the Spirit. And what is he saying? I know exactly what he thinks. I know every single thing he is doing. And what he is doing, I am doing what? So that what you cannot see, you will be able to see. And that is what he is saying. He is making the Father known. He is doing what Adam failed to do. Right? Adam was to be the image of God on the earth. He was literally to understand God and have a relationship and see the reign of God in Edom and then take that and multiply and bring what was there into all of this beautiful earth that God had created. And he failed. And so what Adam failed to do, and because of that, he was given life, then he failed to be the image of God, and because of that, he ushered in death. That's why Paul refers to Jesus very often as the second Adam or the second man because what Adam could not do, Jesus did. And so Jesus, by submitting himself unto death, brings life. And so he fixes that. And so that is why we had that whole lesson of Nicodemus, right? Adam ushered in death. He brought physical life. We still procreated but we were born in spiritual darkness. Jesus says, it takes someone spiritually alive to birth spirit. I'm the one. I am the seed. And so Nicodemus, your pedigree ain't gonna get it. You must be born again. I mean, it is, you're like, gosh, this is so easy, right? I get it. Why didn't they get it? (laughs) We've done a lot of work to get there. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may, be, that you may marvel. So the whole relationship is built on what? Yes, he is, he is obedient unto his father. But the relationship is held together by what? What's in that verse? Love. And by the way, most of you would assume that that was an agape. That's not the word there. It's phileo. That is the word there. It is a love of deep feeling, of warmth, affection. Oh, I love that. It is the only time in the New Testament that it is used to describe the Father's love for the Son. It is present tense. What that means is it is eternal, uninterrupted, all-knowing, leaving no room for ignorance. Gosh, I stopped and thought about that. I was thinking about that last night after my weekend. I mean, what is that like? All 
knowing. No guessing. I mean, have you ever had a conversation with someone? They're like, you just don't understand. You just don't understand. You don't understand what I'm going through. Nobody understands it. Nobody can understand. And you're wanting to go, ditto, ditto, sister, ditto. Like, I mean, you know, whatever your situation. And then you're like, okay, help me understand. Well, guess what? That's fallible too. Because who the heck knows themselves? Even if you ask me to help you understand, I can't help you understand. I don't even understand. Am I the only one dealing with crazy? Like, this is just crazy. You're right. I'm not in your body with your experiences. I don't understand that. And you're not in my body with my experiences, and you don't understand this. And it's just, but they don't have that. It is to be fully known and fully loved. And even now that we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we have access to God, it's still not there because of this flesh that we have. We are still living by faith, seeing through a clouded glass, not yet eye to eye. Jesus didn't have that. It was full love, warm affection, the Father and the Son, no ignorance, no room for mistake, absolute knowledge of the Father and the Son together. He's like, trust me, I know his mind. I know everything about him. And we are held together by love. I'm showing you as the image who the Father is. This is what I'm showing you. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And I think you can go into that and know that it is both spiritual and physical. He's talking about his abilities to bring spiritual life, but also we're going to see to literally bring life. He claims to raise the dead. That's what they would hear. He claims to raise the dead, but it's different. It's not like Elijah or Elisha. He's not saying that God will use him as a tool to raise the dead. He's not saying that I'm like the prophets. He's not saying that. He's saying, no, I'm like God. Because what does it say? To whom he will. He is telling them, listen, I can do this according to my own will. I am equal with God. I mean, already he's blown their mind. He is saying, I am equal with my father in absolute knowledge. I am the image of the invisible God. I am his essence. If you see me, he told his disciples, right? Then you have seen the father. Not only am I the same in knowledge or purpose and essence, He's saying, but it is a love. We're the same in love, in affection. We are tied together. And guess what? I have his same power. I have that power and authority. It goes on to say, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. The father gave all judgment to the son. Well, what are they worried about? Because if they understood verse 19... Should that come as a shock? If he knows the Father and does all he sees the Father doing, then won't he also judge in the way that the Father would judge? If there is love, eternal, uninterrupted, leaving no room for ignorance, wouldn't they judge exactly the same? Right now, he is not acting as judge. He is here to reconcile all men to God. I thought Morris had an interesting quote about this. He says, wherever Jesus was, there was the element of judgment. There was always self-reproach where Jesus was. Men were ashamed of themselves. They knew not why. His life was an unceasing act of love, and yet it was an unceasing act of judgment. And then I added, as if the very love was the judge. And isn't that what John said at the beginning when he talked about that we were condemned already? That when we stepped into the light of his love, when we really saw we are the one that would make the judgment. It would be clear. We are either going to run to God 
or we are going to run back to the world because we love the things of the world. And there, you know, there is the picture. And so not only is Jesus one day going to be the ultimate judge, but you need to understand he is the criteria for the judgment. What did you do with Jesus? Did you believe, he says, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father? Woo, that would have blown him up. Isaiah 42.8 says, I will not give my glory to another. So they're like, oh my gosh. He's claiming that he fully knows God. He has absolute knowledge that to know him is to know God. He is saying that they have an eternal, uninterrupted, all-knowing love, deep feeling, compassion, love. He has the same power of God. He's saying that life and death are in his hands. And he is saying that he is going to be honored as God is honored, that he will share in the glory of God. Are you kidding? They're about to lose their mind. And then in verse 24, he says, truly, truly. What does that mean? You best listen up. This is big, what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, do you see that that's singular? For a reason. Whoever believes my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Whoever believes my word, whoever believes my message, what I'm saying to you, this is a lot, but whoever believes, well, is he not just restating John's mission statement? What is the criteria? He's like, I am writing these things so that you may fully understand Jesus is the Christ the son of God, and that by believing in him, that he is fully who he says he is, you will have life in his name. Let that sink in more and more and more as we talk about it. Because if someone ever says to you, they don't believe in the Trinity, that Jesus never claimed to be God, what the heck is he saying right here? Because as I look at it, it's plain as day. He is claiming deity. That is what he is claiming. Um, I love this quote by the Pillar New Testament commentary. It says this, in a, theistic, in a theistic universe, such a statement belongs to one who is himself to be addressed as God or to stark insanity. And isn't that the point? And at the end of the day, when faced with that, the disciple Thomas, the one who doubted the very most, at the end, what did he say? My Lord and my God. He knew because Jesus had been raised from the dead and he saw it and it clicked. All of these things I am telling you clicked and he went, oh my God. This is God. Unbelievable. And he is going to continue, will continue next week because there are some amazing principles that kind of come out of verse 25 through 29. And then we're going to go because bottom line, this is like a stinking courtroom. Okay, so he's making all his statements. And then in order, you know, to defend yourself in the Jewish world in the courtroom, you had to have some witnesses. To be quite honest, they didn't care what you said. It was all based on a witness. And honestly, it was less based on what they said than on who they were. Were they a worthy witness? Could you believe? It's like when someone's going after the integrity of a witness. If you, if you break their integrity, nobody gives a rip what they said, okay? And so that is what we're gonna begin to see is happening. And I'm telling you, the book, and don't forget, the book of John, right? John, who wrote the, the book of John, John the Apostle, also wrote what? Revelation. So the more you know about the gospel of John, the more that's going to be familiar when and if we ever take a look at that book. Okay? Awesome. All right. Um, 
Let me see if there's any other takeaway I want you to have because I'm, again, stopping in the middle. No, I guess. I think you could go back and really get through that temple stuff. And I really think if you really stop and think, who do you really believe Jesus is? Because if he is God, think about what that really means. And then think about what we worry about. Like, do you really, does your life say that you believe that he's God? And I think sometimes we have a hard time because we're convinced that in order to believe that or follow him, like, we want to stay in comfort. Comfort doesn't mean blessing, all right? He is the blessing. He is. And to be quite honest, you're going to begin to know him more through suffering. Now, nobody's going to ask for that, but I'm just saying, most of the time, that's where the good stuff is, all right? There you go. So I gave you stuff to ponder for the week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I love it because the more you know, the more you realize you don't know, and then the more you can learn. And it is, it is. I hunger over the word. You get a morsel and you hunger after more. And so God, so much I could journal with you about. That kind of love, that you know me, there is not one thing left in the shadows. You know everything about me and you love me and you chose me anyway to prepare me to be your bride. Oh, Lord, I pray that I can show that kind of love to others. Maybe that's the key, God. Maybe the love is the greatest of the judgment, not my judgment towards them, but if they see that kind of love, then stuff will be illuminated in their own life. They will see the light. What does she have? Why is she different? What is this kind of love? God, help me. Don't allow my secure insecurities or my needs to keep me from loving others the way they need to be loved. Lord, as we go into the next week, we're gonna begin to understand that when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's accomplished through us. And so what are we doing to expand the kingdom of God to prepare the bride? And Lord, I am so thankful that you don't make one promise that you're not the fulfillment of. You are a promise-keeping God. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. Be with us as we leave. I pray, God, that miraculously, these words, that these women can't get them out of their mind, that they meditate on your scriptures. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.